Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, we're talking with documentary filmmaker Martin Himmel about his new doc, The Arrest, which examines what happens when someone is wrongfully arrested. And I see like a line of cops kind of to the left, and then I turn around and all I hear is, him, him, him. The trauma of an arrest can be overwhelming. And I will never forget this. You're hurting me! I hope you know you brought this on yourself. There is not a single use of force by a police officer that looks pretty. But what if it was a wrongful arrest? The problem is that this happens quite often, where people are innocent. You are presumed guilty until proven innocent. Follow Toronto lawyer Davin Charney as he fights for the wrongfully charged. I always tell my clients when they're charged with a criminal offense, win or lose, you always lose. The G20 protest in Toronto was the site of the largest mass arrest in Canadian history. Over 1,100 people were placed into custody. Protesters were beaten, thrown into cages, and left in isolation for hours. While the treatment of the protesters was horrific, the consequences of the arrest left scars much deeper than anything the police could inflict. It was a really tough year on me, especially physically, uh, mentally. Like, having all my friends turn on me was a shock. Teeth started cracking on me. And I went from 160 pounds to 120 pounds in, like, four months. I basically just stayed within my apartment. I didn't go out. I didn't talk to anyone. I just kind of went into a shell. While you might think of the G20 as an anomaly, this kind of wrongful arrest happens more often than you think, and the consequences to a person's reputation can be extreme. I spoke with Himmel about how he got involved in the doc, why so many wrongful arrests seem to happen in Ontario, and what can be done to stop it. Stay with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today on OnDocs. Sure. My pleasure. Well, I guess the first question is kind of an obvious one, but how did this subject of, of people being arrested and, and their charges dropped, how did that come to you? It was sort of an evolutionary process. Um, it started when I was a child. Um, my dad was a lawyer. In those days, lawyers did a lot of things. They did real estate, divorce, arrests, and they were very approachable to their clients, not like today. And many, many clients would call in the middle of the night during the day or the evening or the morning and say, Sid, that's my father, Sid, I'm in trouble. And a police officer would be there and then he would try to negotiate with the officer over something and try to make not get an arrest and vouch for him. But if there was an arrest, uh, then he would tell his client to keep quiet and then he'd come deal with it. And my father used to always emphasize that uh, contrary to what we all think, it's actually quite easy to get arrested. Uh, accidentally, not accidentally, um, and uh, many people make big mistakes when they get arrested. So he taught us at a young age what to do when we were young. And he said, you say yes officer, no officer, and just give your name and uh, never ask questions. Never ask questions, never say, oh, I never did anything. Just answer the questions and shut up. And uh, <laughs> it was a very, you know, it was very interesting advice. And, he, and people, lots of people got arrested by mistake and in his practice too. And then as time went by, I started to read, um, uh, looking for other documentaries, very interesting reports like the John Howard report 
that talked about 44% of people arrested in Ontario ultimately have the charges dropped. They never come to trial, but it fundamentally ruins their life. Not being convicted, not getting off, not going to trial, just the arrest and the process ruins their life. And uh, I, I said, why? And then it became clear to me that uh, after reading it, well, uh, you could be left in prison for a long time till you get bail, or if you get bail, it costs a lot of money. And if the wrong people find out, you get socially stigmatized, you're guilty before being declared innocent. Then there's a staggering legal bills if you want to get out of it. Uh, and then there's pressure by crowns to make you uh, plea because they don't want to go to trial. And put all that together and waiting months, if not years, for the case to resume, you basically can get either a nervous breakdown or get seriously stressed out and lose sleep. And so it becomes a real torture process to be arrested. And even if you get off, that in itself is a major punishment. And is this a problem unique to Ontario? In Canada, it's not just Ontario, but it's one of the major places. There's a key difference in Ontario and versus, let's say, Quebec or British Columbia. And what's that key difference? The key difference is, is that uh, if a police officer suspects that you've done something wrong, um, he has the full right to arrest you and charge you. The important thing here is the police officer can arrest and lay charges. Now, a police officer uh, himself uh, doesn't, is not a lawyer. Uh, he has a, a fundamental knowledge of the law, of course. And he's not exactly sure what charges will stick or not. So often they're giving multiple charges because they don't know what's exactly the right charge and they want to make sure that they're not missing something. So they lie, they uh, charge you with several, uh, several uh, charges possibly. And then uh, the process starts, whether it's uh, bail or it is um, uh, uh, initial hearings, etc. And then you're in this limbo till the, the Crown prosecutor gets it. So the Crown doesn't really get the case on a real meaningful basis for months usually. And that's where the torture begins in, in Quebec. And then the Crown, by the way, months later could decide the case has no grounds or it does have grounds. Uh, he might decide to drop it. He might decide to do something else. The point is that you have to wait months before the Crown actually deals with the relevance of the charge. And that's the big problem. When it comes to Quebec and British Columbia, for example, the, the police officer can initially arrest, but the Crown must go over. It must be an initial process very close to the arrest where the Crown goes over the charge. And many of them, they'll just throw out saying this is not needed, that's not needed. So the initial vetting is done much closer. And therefore, the pain from the whole thing is not as extreme. And in the United States, you have something called what's called a grand jury, or the, or the prosecuting attorneys also look at it a bit closer. So the unusual part about Ontario is that the police have the power to arrest and charge. And that is uh, a very powerful, powerful tool, and can be a powerful weapon if not used right, because that in itself will punish someone if, uh, if uh, they're arrested. Do you know how many people uh, roughly are in prison now who've been arrested but haven't actually just haven't been convicted of anything yet? It's in the thousands. I can't tell you the exact number. Uh, it fluctuates all the time. Um, uh, uh, there's many people who can't afford bail that are there and have to wait it out. Most do get bail. Most do find a way to, to get bail. But bail can be very restrictive. Bailing in Canada is not just a matter of putting money and out you go. Uh, there's sometimes a need for a surety. Surety is someone who has to vouch for you or look over you. Sometimes you have to stay with the surety. 
Sometimes you have restrictions with the surety. And so it's not just a matter of putting money off in. And that's another big issue that, that has to be considered when, when there's arrest. And you remember, you have, you have not been convicted of anything. And already you have to deal with the cost of bail. You have to deal with getting a lawyer. You have to deal with the surety. To get, to get better bail conditions, you need a good lawyer. If you're just using legal aid, you're not going to get the best conditions. And so money and lawyers become a very crucial part of this whole thing right at the beginning. Hmm. Well, we should talk about some of the cases in the, in the film that you uh, show. And it starts with the G20. And I remember, uh, I, I love the opening scene because it begins with all these people singing, Oh, Canada. And right. they're, they're being kettled by the police. And I, I remember that because my sister was actually in one of those groups, uh, not protesting. She just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, two of the gentlemen that you feature in the film, uh, Adam Nobody and Steve Spencer. We met each other right over here. Yeah. That's where we were. That's where we first saw each other. And that's where I got arrested. That's jumped. where you got arrested. Yeah. Like me, we were probably there for what, like an hour? Just that, chilling? Yeah. I know when I saw you in the jail, I was shocked. Like, <laughs> yeah, I could it's not so believe funny. I remember when, when we got there, it was just like, as soon as I got off the bus, all the years, Adam! Yeah. Like Steve. <laughs> and then you were like, I was waiting for you, but they beat the shit out of me and brought me here. <laughs> like, yeah, I went back looking for you, but yeah. they beat the shit out of me and brought me here. Tell us a little bit about them. Let's just go back a step. The G20 was the largest case of mass arrest in Canada. The largest, over a thousand people arrested. The vast majority had their charges dropped, but a lot of them were either beaten or harassed or suffered from it. So it's a classic case of suffering from arrest where you are not uh, basically brought to justice. Uh, what happened with Adam Nobody uh, is that uh, he had the unfortunate luck of crossing through Queen's Park at a time when the police were really looking for getting someone and they charged him and they charged right at him. You can see it in the video and they pounced on him and, and they beat him. And uh, the, the result of all that was a broken jaw and a broken nose. And, um, and uh, uh, then he was beaten further, and this was the interesting reason, and that is because they asked him, what's your name? And he said, nobody. And they're thinking he's being a smartass, but his name is Adam Nobody. And uh, he suffered a great deal for that. And, he, and the ironic part is he was charged with being... Uh, with, insu- with assaulting police officers, which is rather ridiculous. Uh, it, it was a lengthy process. It took uh, quite a long time. He had to face those charges. Uh, uh, the interesting thing with Adam Nobody is that uh, at, at a certain point, basically, he got justice. And not only that, he managed to, put the, to get compensation for the police. And I'll let the story tell uh, why that happened. Steve Spencer is a different type of example. Yes, he took a few knocks and he got beaten as well, but not nowhere near like Adam Nobody. But um, he suffered what we call extensive humiliation during arrest. Uh, and uh, uh, that involved denying him uh, the services to go to the washroom and then making fun out of him when he couldn't hold his in any further. And then... Uh, he was one of those people that got arrested for something uh, that by happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, which is very common. And that was that um, uh, a few days after the initial arrest and he was freed on bail, he got rearrested again and was wanted as a major instigator in the uh, G20. 
because he happened to be seen sitting uh, on a police car that was eventually destroyed. He had nothing to do with it, and uh, he suffered a great deal in the process before the charges were dropped. And we'll let Stephen explain that, but he suffered socially, he suffered personally, he suffered in many ways. It was a really tough year on me, especially physically, uh, mentally. Like having all my friends turn on me was a shock. Teeth started cracking on me. And I went from 160 pounds to 120 pounds in like four months. I basically just stayed within my apartment. I didn't go out, I didn't talk to anyone. I just kind of went into a shell. Now both Adam and Steve have psychological repercussions that go on to this day and they have to manage with it. And, and that's, the, the, those are like classic examples of being in the wrong place, the wrong time, uh, and uh, the repercussions last forever. Many of his, Steve's friends aren't his friends anymore because of all that, because they didn't believe him and they ostracized him. It was a year later, my final charges were dropped. By now, Adam's story had come out. People started kind of, oh, maybe the police were heavy-handed. Having all my friends like turn on me was the hardest thing. I was totally found guilty by my peers before any proof, before any court dates, I was vilified. Um, you are presumed guilty until proven innocent, I find. Like, I always thought we were innocent until proven guilty, but no. And Adam has to deal with recurring nightmares and many psychological problems. Uh, so being arrested can follow you for the rest of your life. Yeah, let's talk about, about that stigmatization because, I mean, these are guys who didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, there was no conviction, but yet they're still stigmatized. And I'm, I wonder why that is, why, why people still seem to uh, blame them, despite the fact that they didn't really do anything wrong. Because the vast majority of us uh, who are law-abiding citizens and have respect for the justice system and for the police feel somewhere in the back of your mind, you just can't get arrested. You must have done something wrong. There's something there that you're not letting out. They would never go after you if you didn't do something wrong. So what is it that you did wrong? It's that sort of feeling in the back of our minds that, uh, that makes people suspicious of someone who got arrested. And it stays with them. And many times it stays till there's either their, uh, a, a trial and a, and a verdict or, um, uh, or the per charges are dropped. But by that time, so much time has gone by that the person who's suffering being ostracized for it has got a very bad taste about the relationship. The relationship gets tarred and it gets uh, damaged and then uh, they don't want those friends anymore. So what happens is, is that you might change your mind and say, oh, well, what do you know? He was innocent. Uh, or I guess he didn't do anything wrong. It might not be a big deal for you, but for the person who was suffering from it and was stigmatized, it stays with them forever, and that relationship is damaged, and, and that damage is significant. Well, another person who this kind of happened to, uh, she wasn't at the G20, but uh, she's in the film, Pamela Marklin. One of the neighborhoods to which police traveled was this one in Hamilton, where Pamela, a single mother of six children, declared police kicked in the wrong door. I was handcuffed. My daughters were handcuffed. My son, who's nine years old, who is autistic, was terrified. My eight-year-old twins were terrified. This is the worst thing we've ever been through. Investigators were making no apologies. Well, we have a different perspective on the execution of, of those search warrants. Can you talk a little bit about her? 
Sure. This is this is a very interesting case because it is a a very unsolved problem to this day, and we raise it really significantly. Actually, the the Ontario justice system did something very good in November 2018 to try to help people who've been arrested and not convicted and not even standing trial. They simply had an arrest and it was dropped. Uh, before that, employers could go to the police and ask for a, a file on a prospective employer and see if he's been uh, has a conviction or a criminal case against him or an arrest. And the police would give it. And the, very, the employer would see no difference between an arrest where the arrest was dropped and a criminal conviction. For him, it's the same thing. I don't want any trouble. It usually ended your chances of getting employed. And so the fact that police was giving out this information really damaged people who were arrested and the charges were dropped. They're innocent, but that doesn't matter. So the police changed all that. And, and then when people come for a review of a report, uh, they, they will issue things like if you have a criminal record, if you've been convicted of something, but they will not release that you've been arrested and it's been, uh, and it's been quashed. Uh, and that really has helped people when they go find work. What the police have no control of or the, the justice system has no control of is a Google arrest record. And what does that mean? Is that uh, if somehow it came out on Google through social media or friends or something that you've been arrested, then every time your name is Googled, somebody sees that you've been arrested. And that sticks with you for now, for life. Actually, that applies more to North America than to Europe. Because in Europe, you have the right to be forgotten and you can make Google take it down. But for some reason or another, in Canada and the United States, you cannot make them take it down. So what happened with Pamela Markland is that Pamela Markland was a single mother, uh, 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 black, uh, and had six kids. That already sets you up for trouble. Single mother, black, kids, it stereotypes you completely. But she's a good mother and she was taking care of them. And then lo and behold, one night in 2010, uh, there was a pro, there was a, um, a operation called Operation Marvel right across the country, where various police forces, the Toronto Police Force, the Hamilton Police Force out west, they all raided uh, drug uh, manufacturers and and uh, drug lords to try to hit them very hard at the same time. Someone said, one officer said, Pamela Markland's house is a drug factory, and they got a warrant based on that. They rammed in the door at. Five in the morning, one of her children is autistic. They come in with machine guns. They don't come in with like little pistols to say, excuse me. They come in like the military with assault rifles. One of her kids is, is uh, autistic and she could easily, the kid basically freaked out. He could easily have been shot because the police are in a very offensive mode and it's all a matter of seconds, but luckily he was not. They were all, all these kids and their mother were, were totally uh, freaked out by this. Guns pointed them. And uh, they started to search the premises. They were convinced it was a drug, it was a hideout for a drug manufacturing facility. Several hours later, they're under arrest. They look, they don't find anything. More hours passed. And then they say, okay, there's nothing here. You're free. They don't, they knocked in the door. They don't fix the door. They just leave. But what has happened during that time? The CHCH television in Hamilton was there. Global television was there. The Hamilton Spectator has covered it. And then when they asked Bill Blair, who was the police commissioner at the time in Toronto, about the Markling case, and they say, hey, nothing was found there. Why did you go there? He says, well, we have information to the contrary. Just saying we have information to the contrary makes you a suspect whether you were released or not. That report in the Hamilton Spectator and the visuals, every time you Google Pamela Markland or her children, 
it comes up. That was many, many years ago. So um, basically, her lawyer, Devin Charney, was a lead uh, character in this documentary because he represents many people, took the Hamilton and the Toronto police to court to demand damages because their reputation is damaged. And this case drags on for nine years, more than that. It drags on yeah, for nine and a half years, which is part of the tactic. The police forces do not want to give compensation, do not want to admit guilt. They try to make it so uneconomical for you to go after them that you'll just drop it. But they don't drop it. They keep after it. And their biggest contention was is that their reputations are ruined because it's all over Google. The kids who are now adults can't find it hard to find jobs. They find it hard to get dates. They find it hard to... Um, to rent apartments. Who wants to rent apartments? Somebody that was uh, had was raided by the police in a drug charge and the police commissioner says, well, there's some information to the contrary, which is not the case. And so I'm not going to give it away here, but they draw, they drive forward because they say the big damage of this arrest is the Google arrest record. And this is a very big problem throughout North America. Well, you mentioned the lawyer, uh, Davin Charney. And uh, he's an interesting character because he, sure. you know, he's he himself has kind of experienced what what his clients have gone through. Can you just tell us a little bit about him? Yes, de- de- most. If you go to a lawyer and say, "Look, I think I've been wrongly arrested. I want to sue the police. I want to sue the Justice Department. I want to sue someone," the lawyer, will, most lawyers, will just sort of yawn and say, "Look, it's a lost battle. You're wasting your time. It will go on for years." And and basically, the lawyer doesn't want it because he can't make any real money out of it. It's a it's a, a lopsided process. He has to, you have to fight it for years. As I said, the system is built to discourage, because many people will want to sue the police for a, a, an improper arrest, and and so you, there's nowhere to go. And Davin is one of the few I would call crazy lawyers, but very interestingly mm-hmm. crazy, who is determined to take the police to task. And he wins a lot of cases where most people would never win. Uh, now, why is he so motivated? The reason he's so motivated that uh, in his youth, that Davin was a social activist, and uh, we see that in the documentary. He was very, very. He, went, he was active in the Waterloo region where he was in university, and Kitchener Waterloo, and um, he was helping kids that uh, were basically homeless and needed shelter, and had some trouble with the police, and he was very. Um, he wasn't easy on the police, like when they wanted to question the kids or search the kids, he would not make it easier for them. And the police had a score to settle with him. And so on one particular case, they used it as an example to arrest him. They just didn't take him down to, I don't know, the Kitchener Central Station and just uh, book him and let him out a few hours later. Because none of these charges were like massive felonies that you have to be in prison for a long time. They made a big issue out of it. The Crowns came and said, we don't want to release him so fast. And so where they, they sent him to a maximum security prison, Maplehurst, to sit uh, and wait for his bail. That's a recipe for being beaten up, harassed by other prisoners. They know what goes on at Maplehurst. He's not a criminal. He's not a veteran of prisons. He is basically fresh meat to be pounced on. I was released uh, on bail and I was acquitted after a trial, so I was found not guilty. And this is an experience I think I share with many people is that, uh, you know, you do the time but you don't do the crime. I did almost two weeks in jail but was never convicted uh, of any crime. Essentially I was fired from my employment 
which was a major um, consequence for me. And so I decided to become a lawyer. I could see that there's the ability as a lawyer to do good work, to do social justice work. And that is what he does. He takes cases like Pamela Markland. Pamela Markland is, is not a wealthy woman. Pamela Markland's got six kids. Pamela Martin has that very tough stereotype, black, single, several, parents, several uh, fathers, very unfair stigma. She's a wonderful mother. She takes great care of her kids. Uh, she's a fantastic woman, uh, and she's very bright, and some of her kids are extremely bright. Don't fit the stereotype, but it's a hard thing to beat in court. She took it all and fought with it for years, years, and we'll see where it goes and what he does with it. And, and there are many cases like that. That's what he does. That's his driving force in life. Do the people who he represents lose trust in the justice system after what they experience? That's an excellent question. Um, they initially do lose trust in the justice system. Uh, they're bitterly disappointed. And then they're also somewhat traumatized in various ways. And that trauma takes a while. Uh, as time goes by, uh, they realize that the, the, the justice system is is imperfect, but it's important. But you've got to be very careful. And I think that's the most important lesson here. Of course, the justice system and the police are very important for our society. We need them very much. They do protect us. They do keep law and order. We all need them. But there's a lot of imperfections. You've got to be careful. And, and that's, I think, the most important lesson from this documentary and others, that the system has flaws. You've got to be careful about it. It's not just a matter about innocent or guilty. It's a matter of how you play the system. It's extremely important. And, uh, and uh, so they're somewhat disillusioned. I think they still have a great respect for the law and for the justice system, but they're disillusioned and they have to be careful. How many of these arrests, these false arrests, are as a result of, of things like racial profiling? I know that there's one gentleman in the film who's black and he's arrested and, um, you know, it's clearly, I think, a case of racial profiling, but I wonder if you can speak to that. There's a significant disproportionate number of uh, racial profiling problems uh, in Ontario. Native peoples are definitely a, a, a outsized in prison, far outsized in prison. Uh, people of color are outsized in prison. Uh, it, 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 there is a term driving while black uh, that we use. That driving while black is a very important term because it's an excuse for the police to stop you and demand your driver's license so they can interrogate you or get you on other things. They can't just stop you on the street if you're walking and demand you give an identity, but they can do it uh, using the excuse of a driver's license. Uh, that happens quite often. We, have, we actually have a couple examples of that. So racial profiling is a problem. It's recognized as a problem, and the Ontario government does try to deal with it. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's an, an issue of ongoing concern. Do you, do you think there's any recognition on the part of the police that they arrest too many people? I think there is a, a somewhat of a recognition there. And I think uh, certainly uh, the Toronto Police Board, which oversees the police, does recognize it. We spoke to the former commissioner who was there for about 10 years and sees it's a problem. But listen, the, the police have a certain problem. It's not, just, it's not just ill will. It is the system puts them into a certain spot. Um, they are not lawyers who are sitting relaxed in an office and dealing with a case, with, you know, the papers and the time. They are dealing with issues on the street, and uh, they have to make quick calls. And if they make a wrong call, sometimes they can cost them a job. The most common example is domestic disputes. Um, you know, uh, the vast majority of domestic disputes 
there is a very heavy emphasis for the police to arrest the male. And there are several reasons for that. Uh, one is, uh, sometimes men kill their wives or beat their wives and hurt their wives. It does happen the other way, but less so. But then it also becomes a tool in a fight. If a man and woman don't get along, a woman has a very powerful tool in putting the man into a certain place by saying, he's threatening me. When a police officer comes to a call like that and he's threatening me, he's facing a very difficult, difficult situation. If it doesn't look like he's really threatening, you know, and tell him, can we just leave this, uh, please, as to, uh, you know, you guys trying to get along, stop the fight. And then he goes, takes a knife and murders her uh, an hour later. That police officer's job is finished. His career is finished. And not to mention the fact that he has to live with that all the time. It's a very heavy responsibility. And so it's, isn't it easier to say, gosh, you know, I, just, you know, I have five other cases. I've got other things that I'm dealing with. It looks, you know, I don't know exactly what's going here, but there's definitely a problem. I'm just going to arrest and let the crown deal with it. So a man gets arrested, then he's in jail, then the bail, the whole system. And that particular individual will be barred from being in the house. He will have to live somewhere else. He's barred from seeing his children, whether he's innocent or guilty. And the process can take a year to be resolved. And, and so is the police officer at fault for doing that? Not necessarily. You know, it's, it's his uh, behind that's on the line. If he calls it wrong, it's, they're going to come to him for fault. So why not just arrest the guy and let the crowns deal with it? It's legitimate. And, and so the system has a problem there. If the crown got involved earlier or some sort of social mechanism got involved earlier and they see, well, it's not exactly justified, that guy can be out of trouble a lot faster, but he's going to have to live with it for a while. One lawyer, I'll just give you one example. It's comical, but it's serious. One lawyer told me a very interesting example of a husband and wife in a respectable era having a fight. And the fight, the fight was, out, not a fist fight, an argument. I don't know if you're married, but lots of people who are married argue. And they were having the fight. Uh, they were having the fight on the driveway. And it was winter time, and the neighbor saw it, uh, and uh, from his window, and they happened to be standing on some ice. And she lost her footing and fell. And she fell into her husband, and he lost footing and fell on top of her. And then they got up. It was all very innocent. He immediately called the police. The police came, intervened. We saw that there was some fighting here, and there was somebody was attacked. They arrested him, took him away. That incident, and they are a good couple, they have children, they get along. No matter how much they told the officers that it was, uh, it was just innocent, an officer, is, first of all, has to suspect the wife is actually being abused, and so we have to look at that and not believe her so fast. He decided to arrest and charge, and it took almost 15 months for that incident to be resolved, where the father could not easily see his children uh, uh, because of so, all sorts of restrictions. 15 months. So, so do you want to blame the police officer? I wouldn't blame the police officer because he's got a lot of responsibility there and that's what the system tells him. I think the, the, the problem is in resolving it faster. Well, we have to finish our conversation, but I'm wondering if there are any final thoughts you want to leave us with, maybe about just how this uh, experience making this film made you think of uh, policing or about the, the criminal justice system. You should take time to understand the system. It's very, very important. When a police officer arrests you, he's not your friend. He's not there to say, oh, officer, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. He's there to arrest you if that's what he wants. You're in, you're in the, the system. The urge to talk, the urge to resolve it will get you into more trouble faster than you can possibly imagine. That's lesson number one. So it might be a very bad situation, but keeping your mouth shut is par paramount. And then the next thing is, 
and this is really unfair to most people, that money is a huge factor. If you get a proper lawyer, you have a much better chance of resolving things in your favor. Because if you don't have money, what happens is the crowns put pressure on you eventually. Look, do you want to go to trial and spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000? And if you get it wrong, I'm going to throw you into jail for two, three years? How many of us have forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to waste on a court case? But if you plead out, you're, you're, gonna, you're, going, to, um, you're going to be okay. Uh, we'll give you a conditional discharge or something like that, which is not so great. So many plead out for charges they were not convicted of. If you have money, you can reverse that. If you have money and he sees you've got a prominent lawyer, then the crowd thinks, well, I'm using uh, the budget and I have it on you know, 50 cases. What am I going to really use it? I want to use it on something I'm going to win. Can I win this? Can I beat this lawyer? He's got a lot of cash. He's got a lot of resources to get all sorts of evidence. Do I really need this or should I go for something better that I can win? He'll be more prone to settle out or drop the charges. And so the unfortunate reality is money is very important when you get arrested. Lawyers are extremely important when you get arrested. But if you're ever arrested, the most important thing is to keep quiet and find a lawyer that can get you out of it and be prepared for a very rough time. The, the answer to all this is it would be much better if crowns and police can work together and resolve many cases quicker so that people who are unjustifiably arrested will be let out of the system faster. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you. And that's the podcast. The rest debuts tonight on TVO at 9 p.m. And you can also watch it over at TVO.org. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And better yet, tell a friend. If you want more OnDocs content, you can find episodes on our website at TVO.org, featuring interviews with Ai Weiwei, Astra Taylor, and much more. This podcast was produced by Matthew O'Mara and me. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor. Get well soon, Katie. And our executive producer for digital is Kathy Bay. We'll catch you at the next screening.